Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. Uh, yes, that is me about seven years ago. Uh, anyway, and I am very happy to welcome everybody to today's webinar, How Can Workforce Leaders Boost Job Quality? Um, uh, before we uh, get into the content of the webinar, um, I just want to note uh, some of the technical logistics. Um, all attendees are muted, um, but please do use the Q&A box on the bottom of your Zoom window for questions or comments. Uh, we'll have time at the end to address these questions. Uh, if you have specific questions as a speaker is presenting that are sort of a quick, clarif quick clarification that you'd like, please note that and we'll try to take those relatively soon, but most of the questions we'll take at the end of the webinar. Um, if you're having any technical difficulties, please uh, chat to Dan Lebednik, or you can email him at eop.program at aspeninst.org with any technical issues. Uh, this webinar is being recorded and the deck will be shared following the webinar. Um, I want to uh, uh, thank Prudential Financial for their support of our job quality and practice webinar series and all of our efforts to advance a job quality field of practice. Um, this webinar is the third in our job quality, um, job quality and practice series and it's part of a larger effort that we're engaged in to support practitioners across a wide range of fields including workforce development, economic development, capital deployment, uh, policy advocacy, worker advocacy, business support, and more to think about how they can really practically address the issues of job quality and the work that they do. In the coming months, we will be releasing a curated set of job quality tools to help practitioners across all these fields build capacity to strengthen job quality within their own organizations, with business partners, and within their communities. Uh, in today's webinar, we're focused on how workforce development leaders can encourage improved job quality in their communities. Workforce development has long recognized the importance of a quality job to a person's life and has well-developed tools and strategies for preparing people to succeed in quality jobs. But we also know that the nature of work has been changing and unfortunately what that has meant in many communities is that there are many jobs that don't provide a sustainable livelihood. So there isn't that quality job for that well-prepared worker. We know that today, roughly one in four working adults works in a job in which the hourly wage, even for full-time year-round work, is insufficient to live a, lift a small family above the poverty line. We know that roughly one in five working people is eligible to receive the earned income tax credit, an indication of the ways in which work has become insufficient on its own to support a dignified standard of living. And of course, questions of job quality go beyond earnings, but earnings are essential if we expect people to be able to lift themselves out of poverty and to achieve economic self-sufficiency by connecting to work. So the question we are focused on today is, what role can workforce leaders play on the demand side of the labor market equation to improve the odds that a quality job will be there for a well-qualified worker? Today, we're going to hear from three leaders from different types of organizations who are engaged in very different local labor markets. They are Mandy Townsend, Vice President of Employer Engagement at JVS Boston, who's also an Aspen Institute Job Quality Fellow. Janice Urbanik, Senior Director for Innovation and Strategy at the National Fund for Workforce Solutions, who was a long time ago one of our Sector Skills Academy Fellows and Brook Valley Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at San Diego Workforce Partnership, who is a key partner in our Reimagine Retail work. Um, I'm sorry to report that Karen York, Chief Executive Officer at the Job Opportunities Task Force, another Aspen Institute Job Quality Fellow, uh, had to send her regrets, uh, but we had a very packed agenda, um, so we've got lots to talk about with these three, uh, especially with your, time for your questions at the end. Um, and now I'm going to uh, turn it over to Mandy Townsend at JVS Boston uh, to talk about the work they're doing to advance job quality. Mandy, over to you. Thanks, Maureen. Uh, 
Good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Maureen said, I'm the Vice President of Employer Engagement here at JVS Boston. We are one of the largest workforce development agencies in the greater Boston and probably New England region. We see about 12,000 job seekers every year and work with around 500 employers in higher touch uh, relationships every year. Uh, we focus on skills, jobs, and careers. So we have some internal training tracks for folks who don't have the skills necessary to get into the job that they're looking for. And then we have career coaches who help people with one-on-one -on -one job coaching after those skills training and prior. So we have a range of services from light to high touch um, job placement and workshop services here. And the third piece of our work is careers where we help folks that we've placed into jobs transition those into careers. And we have 30 or so employers who pay us fee-for-service to train their incumbent worker and most recently uh, partner on recruiting, screening, and training in a talent pipeline model. Um, so we're quite busy. We have a lot of constituent groups from clients to employers to community partners and really excited to talk about what we've been doing in uh, job quality most recently. Next slide, please. So why job quality? We were challenged a few years ago to think about job quality in terms of not something we were doing on the side of some of our job placement work, but actually as the job placement work. And uh, we have an advisory council and we were challenged to move the focus on good jobs from a hobby to our mission, which I thought was a clever way of putting it to say, hey, focus on this, <laughs> the time is now. And so we are really trying to achieve economic mobility for our clients and their families, as most of you probably are who are listening to this webinar, and to leverage the tight market conditions to build good employer habits. We believe that the things that we put into place now will become habits over time. Uh, we get the question a lot, what happens when the labor market changes? It certainly will, but why uh, not make hay while the sun is shining? So uh, this is our focus, and it's really part of our three-year strategic plan, which you'll see in a moment. Next slide, please. So how we are getting there is through a number of projects and job, large job quality initiative, which I'll spend more time talking about today. But over the past two years, we conducted three job quality projects under uh, the National Fund grant with the employers you can see on the screens, Spalding, uh, the Boston Home and Boloco, around three very different elements of job quality. One was the creation of a new job type, another is a talent pipeline model and looking at retention over time, and the third is uh, leadership's development training series. Uh, at the same time of that grant going on, we developed an employer engagement strategy and a team that was going to work on that. So we actually have a dedicated fee-for-service employer engagement team that works also on job quality. The third thing that we're doing at our agency is applying a job quality overlay on all of our engagement activities. We're looking at our employers um, in terms of how engaged they are with us, and we have a guide that we use to figure out where on the scale employers are. And then overlaid on that is whether if we're engaging employers who have great job quality, we want to be doing more of that. But if we have a less engaged employer that has really high job quality, instead of spending very limited resources on employers that have lower job quality, we want to really strategically focus our energy on getting those employers who are maybe at the very beginning with us much higher on the engagement scale. The fourth thing that we are focused on in the next couple of years is doubling the number of clients in quality jobs. We actually didn't have a benchmark prior to this year, so we've used a different scale to figure out how many clients we have right now in quality jobs as defined by our pillars, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, but doubling that number. I tried to triple it, but I was talked off the cliff by our uh, advisory council, so stuck with doubling. Uh, and the fifth thing is the job quality benchmarking initiative, which we will focus on today. Next slide, please. So why are we having an initiative? We have three stakeholders, as I mentioned in the introduction, our clients, our employers, and internally, just as an agency. We would like to leverage this tight labor market so that families can access better quality jobs. But employers believe they have high quality jobs. And so by providing them with some quantitative and qualitative data that compares their jobs to others, they can understand whether their job is in fact competitive and it is including quality components. And so for our clients, we want to have employers that we work with have better jobs. And for our employers, we want to work with all employers. We prefer to work with employers who have great quality jobs that have been identified. But if we do have employers calling us with lower quality 
um, entry-level work, we'd like to work with them to help them improve. We see them as our partners, not our adversaries, and so we're sort of the carrot in the carrot and stick analogy. And the third piece is the ability to make data-driven decisions. Right now, we're basing these decisions on our gut. We think this employer is great because they've hired 20 people, but really, are they the best in the field? Are they the best in class? And so we're using our initiative to determine that using data. Next slide, please. So the goals of the project are threefold. One, for our direct service staff, they can go into a tool and filter the right fit job for their client. So if they have a client who's looking for a certain type of job, uh, let's say one that has a career ladder, they can find which companies offer the best career ladder jobs. If we have clients who need a job right now because they're on the edge of homelessness, we can filter the tool by the highest paid wage jobs so that we can actually help clients make a strategic decision for themselves and their family depending on what they need at any given time. I know nationally there's been a big debate on what is job quality and it is different for everyone. So we tried to develop something that's very flexible with the definition for all constituent parties. What I identify as a quality job is very different from maybe what my colleague would identify and so we wanted that to reflect for our client population as well. The second piece is focus our decision-making and employer engagement activities on companies with higher quality jobs. And three, we serve as consultants to our employer partners and we'd like to deliver data-driven information to them rather than anecdotal um, feedback from our clients. So we're gonna, on the next slide, get into what this all really means. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we developed a tool that assesses an employer's job quality. We came up to our job quality pillars by actually asking our staff to identify what they think is our clients would say, our components of a quality job. And then we asked our clients themselves what they would identify as components of a quality job. And we crossed our fingers and prayed that those would be the same answers, and they were almost 95% of the time. And so we overlaid those two together, and you can see some of the details about how many people we asked in the surveys that we did. Um, we overlaid the two of those, and we came up with five job quality pillars, which you'll see on the next slide. So the client responses were livable wage, scheduling, flexibility, access to benefits, support, supportive managers, and access to a career ladder which we transferred over to the five pillars of job quality that we're using here on our, on our initiative and on our tool, and developed a 34-question survey out of those uh, responses from clients and off the five pillars. Uh, for those of you who are really good at math, these numbers don't add up to 34 questions. That's because we have some demographic information on the survey, such as how big is your company and how many positions do you have. The other thing that's interesting to note is we've beta tested this with multiple employer partners and when we started we asked about all the entry-level jobs the employer might have but realized very quickly that that was difficult for employers to answer particularly if they had 10 or 15 entry-level roles and so our tool actually works on role not on the company as a whole and we'll go into uh, what the tool actually produces here on the next slide <clears throat> So you're looking at a sample employer report. This would be a report on one particular job, for example, a pharmacy technician. An employer would answer that 34 question survey uh, with people in their uh, region and in their industry. And then we produce this abbreviated report to them. And the things that are circled in pink, I wanted to just quickly highlight. So the first circle, this your job quality profile, an employer of choice benchmark is a 75% at the top. Uh, companies can see where they score, and then companies can also see the average score of their counterparts, again, with the same job in the same geographic region. And so right now we're focused on Boston, but there's been some interest in this tool nationally, so we're thinking about how this might scale. Uh, the second piece where it says five job quality pillars, they get a ranking against actual similar sized companies with the same role. And so as you can see, this company, would be number nine out of nine on supportive environment. And you can imagine an employer getting that might panic and think, oh my gosh, what do I do? Well, we have a solution for them. We want them to call us and uh, participate in some consulting that allows us to help them understand how they stack up in different areas. And so we always give someone an area to celebrate and then we give them areas to focus on if they're not doing great. So as you can see, this um, 
have this model company here, is not doing great in scheduling, access to career ladders, or supportive environment. And so those are the three components that we'd really focus on. But we do want to celebrate the wage with them. We've been through multiple iterations of this tool, and we now have confidence in the tool that we have, the survey that we've sent out, and we've sent out 20 reports to employers at this point, 25 actually, and we've received three requests for consulting that we're working on right now after this abbreviated report. And we're employing a strategy where at our job fairs, we ask employers to take the job quality survey as part of their registration. Uh, eventually, the first in this first year of data collection, it's a voluntary opportunity. But in the coming years, it's going to be a mandatory part of their registration. Oftentimes, we just say yes to whoever registers first to our job fairs, and we want to deploy a little more strategy there. And so that's uh, the plan going forward. However, at the last three job fairs, we'd have 50% of employers voluntarily doing this within hours of registering. And it's been quite impressive, the feedback that we've gotten on how helpful this report has been. Next slide, please. So I wanted to also share some early wins here. <clears throat> uh, we've been able to negotiate three-hour wage increases with some employer partners. Uh, whether they attribute that to us or not, we don't care, and they might not. Um, but, you know, with the wage benchmarking data, we could say, oh, well, you know, you're counterpart down the street is paying $3 more an hour. They said, oh, well, then that's what we pay, too. So that's fine. We'll take that as a win. Uh, our talent pipeline model, where employers pay us fee-for-service, is uh, going incredibly well. We had one cycle to 13 in FY17 to FY20. You can see the revenue increases, and we served 117 in this talent pipeline model. And in the model, they actually have a job coming out of the training program, which is quite different from our traditional model where we just collect folks to come into the training, whoever wants, and then we have job seekers find them, a, our, our career coaches find them a job at the end. In this model, the employer promises a job at the front side, and so it's much easier for clients to make decisions on where they're going to go and if they're going to quit a job to attend a 12-week training program. So that the model has been doing incredibly well a lot of investment on employer part uh, on the employer part and relaxing of some standards and combining job requisitions to improve job quality you can see some of these on the screen um, and then some on the client side uh, if we go to the next slide the client outcomes have been incredible honestly because of the job quality work and the talent pipeline model our pharmacy technicians are earning thirteen thousand dollars more a year which is could mean the difference of childcare for a family, maybe a car to be able to travel to work. It's quite a lot of money. It's much more of an increase than you get for your uh, merit-based increase every year. And our CNA is the same, a little less um, less of an increase, but certainly improving the quality of jobs for our certified nursing assistants. And then eight, by doing the talent pipeline model and providing some of the report outs from the benchmarking surveys, we've been able to combine some job requisitions to provide more hours a week for our farm techs and CNAs. We actually uh, just are, got a contract to do the talent, pipeways, talent pathways for um, child care providers, and that's going to open up a whole other line of uh, work and careers for our clients, and so hoping to negotiate job quality components on that as well. Um, so thanks very much, and I'm happy to take questions at the end. Great. Thank you so much, Mandy. That was fantastic. Um, and I just want to remind everybody to feel free to chat questions in now as we're going through. Um, and we won't, you know, take them all now, but as things occur to you, feel free to chat in some questions, and we will be uh, discussing those all at the end. Um, and now I'm going to turn it over to Janice Urbanik, Senior Director for Innovation and Strategy at the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. So, Janet, Janice, over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Maureen, and thank you for having me on today. So, um, as Maureen said, I'm with the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. We are a network of over 30, 30 different regional collaboratives in 26 states, all of whom are working towards a future where workers, employers, and communities are thriving and prosperous. And we do that by investing in practices, policies, and systems that improve business performance, and the economic lives of, um, of workers. Next slide, please. Um, one of our major initiatives that we have is CareerStat, which is a national industry sector partnership for healthcare. And it is focused on promoting, as you can see there, increased employer investment in frontline 
uh, healthcare worker skill development and career advancement. Um, we have members in 44 states, which covers a range of employers from uh, across the continuum of care and industry partnerships, workforce development partners, as well as philanthropic organizations. Next slide, please. Uh, just a little deeper dive into career stat. Uh, it focuses on helping these healthcare organizations develop, scale, and sustain their workforce development programs by, first of all, focusing on evidence-based best practices. Uh, we have a uh, report that was written called The Guide to Investing in Frontline Healthcare Workers, which is a great synopsis of evidence-based practices in the healthcare sphere that any healthcare provider can use. We've also created a resource um, resource center and member directory online that anybody can access, any healthcare organization can access and learn more about what are some of the tools that are available to healthcare organizations. We've also implemented a peer recognition program and have recognized over 50 organizations in the last six years. And we're in the process of expanding that uh, recognition program to other industries um, ready for deployment next year 2021 and finally and this is one of our uh, most exciting things is we've developed a workforce development academy for employers that it's a peer learning exchange where employers are learning from each other over a number of months around how can they deepen their investments in their frontline workers and uh, right now we just kicked off our latest cohort we've got 16 different organizations uh, participating in this academy and those 16 organizations represent over 120,000 workers. So think about the scale that can be achieved uh, by working with organizations and, and improving those frontline jobs. Next slide, please. So one of the things that um, we've been doing is, is helping employers really understand what self-sufficiency really means. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of employers aren't just aren't in touch with what that means. So what you see in front of you is a slide that uh, we have used where we talk about the federal poverty guidelines and highlight what a family of three or a family of four needs just to afford the basics. And so as you can see from this, uh, it need, a, a family of three needs about $21 per hour and a family of four needs almost $25 an hour just to afford the basics. Um, I am located in Cincinnati and um, what some of the questions that I've gotten a lot is, well, a family of four, that's two wage earners, right? Well, in Cincinnati, only uh, about half of the families with uh, children under 18 have two wage earners. So half of the time, the burden of bringing in $25 an hour falls on the shoulders of one wage earner. But a lot of times what you hear people talk about is the number of people who are in low wage positions. And what I have found is when we talk about it that way, it, it tends to put the onus or the responsibility on that person, on that worker, to get the skills that they need to get a better job or that they need to be working harder and picking up more hours. That next bullet point that you see flips that conversation. And this is that in Cincinnati, almost three out of four jobs, 72% of them pay less than $51,500 a year. The reason that figure is important is if you look at the family of four line, that's what a family of four needs just to afford the basics. So when you flip the conversation and talk about what the job market looks like around how many jobs are available that provide a living wage, that gets the attention of employers because then it moves the onus of the discussion from the worker to, to try to find a better job onto the employers around what can they be doing to improve the jobs. And a lot of times people will ask me, well, come on, can't people get by on less than $50,000 a year? And I typically have another slide that would show using the MIT living wage calculator for a given county, what that breakout is. I've looked at the stats from uh, a number of different cities across the country and this three out of four uh, ratio is actually pretty close in a lot of the cities I've looked at. In some cases, it's two out of three, three out of four. The key point is the vast majority of the jobs pay less than what a family of four needs to get to provide the basics. Next slide, please. So 
what this all boils down to is this is a job quality issue. It is not a social service issue. And a lot of times employers will think about this as a social service issue. It really isn't. To solve the talent issue that employers are dealing with right now, we as a workforce development field and employers and, and indeed entire communities need to be focused on creating economy boosting jobs. And how that's defined is an economy boosting job pays people enough that they can pay their bills, that they can spend on utilities, doctor visits, et cetera. And by doing that, they are investing in their local community, which is boosting the local economy for everybody. It's helping businesses grow, it's helping the community thrive. So we've all heard that uh, uh, quote from Henry Ford that he needed to pay his workers enough so that they could afford the cars that they were building. He was right. So next slide, please. Um, so to help the uh, workforce development field with, uh, with this, um, we have created a job design framework that actually was initially created by Stephen Dawson, who everybody knows is a you know, well-known um, uh, former employer and, and advocate for improving job quality. And this is a menu of options that, employ that, that workforce development professionals can use with employers to meet the employers where they are on their job design framework. And it breaks it out around foundational skills, foundational elements, support, and opportunity. And I have a few circled on there that I just want to call attention to. Wages and benefits, you know, I've talked a lot about that. Um, and Mandy gave some great examples of what JBS in Boston was able to do. And, and while that's critically important, there are other factors, just as Mandy said, around flexible hours and scheduling and, and regular hours so that people have, have a good feel for what their regular income is going to be. The other thing that we have seen across our network that's working on job quality is the importance of supervisor training and, and job coaching. Um, we've all heard the adage that people don't quit their company, they quit their supervisor, and, and that is really true. What we are seeing is that many supervisors, particularly supervisors of frontline workers, are people who were very strong individual contributors, and then they were promoted without any training on how to get results through others. And especially when you think about racial and gender equity, they may not be, they may not have the skills to get, um, to get results through people who may be different than them. Uh, the other element that I wanna talk about is participation in self-management. And this really gets to the voice of the worker. And that one of the things our sites have really been focusing in on is how do you encourage employers to talk to their employees, to, to assess their employees, to survey their employees to understand what the real opportunities and issues are. Many times an employer will think that, well, I know what the issue is, and our sites have, have been trained and are learning to ask, yes, we understand that that's what you believe the issue is, but have you talked to your workers? Are, are you helping, are you involving them in not only identifying what the issue are, but then also identifying what poten potential interventions there might be to help improve the design of the jobs? Next slide, please. Um, the, the thing that I want to close in on is, um, you know, I have talked a lot about wages, and, and while wages are criti critically important, Gallup did a study last year, a uh, typical Gallup study of thousands and thousands of people um, around how do they define a quality job. And this chart really sums it up. What you can see is that the items that I have the yellow circles are the ones that were the most highly rated by individuals around how they define a quality job. And that's enjoying your day-to-day -day work, job security, stable and predictable pay. What you'll notice about those things is many of those don't necessarily cost anything or, very, or are very low cost for an employer. So that is something you can help employers understand. The items that are circled in red, those are the items that people were the least satisfied with. And what you see is what you would expect, level of pay, benefits, um, as well as career advancement opportunities. So we offer this up to, um, to sites to share with employers around, while wages and benefits are important, there are many other elements of job design that are just as important and can be low-cost intervention. And that's it. Thank you very much. 
Great. Thank you so much, Janice. Um, and thanks to everybody who's been uh, chatting in their questions. We encourage you to uh, keep doing that. Um, and now it is my pleasure to uh, turn things over to Brooke Valley, uh, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at the San Diego Workforce Partnership. Over to you, Brooke. Thank you, Maureen. Um, well, pleasure to be with everybody here today. Um, the San Diego Workforce Partnership is both the Workforce Board for San Diego County, uh, the federally designated board, as well as a 501c3 that's focusing on economic mobility for our county. Um, and so, next slide, if you would. We really started with how do we make sure as a Workforce Board that we are truly embedding job quality in our strategy, uh, going beyond just what are the normal requirements that might be inherent in the funding streams from the state and federal level, and really thinking about how can we elevate uh, work quality to the level that's going to ensure it's really inherent in the DNA in, uh, of our organization. And so we did so by reframing our strategy organizationally around five pillars. Uh, the first of which is job quality, of putting it front and center that we have a responsibility to be working both with the businesses and with the individuals um, to educate and, and consult um, and actively focus on elevating the level of job quality and the jobs that are present um, and the connection in an inclusive way for all members of our community to those jobs. Um, and that that was going to be a key that really led to inclusive business growth and ultimately allowed us to be uh, changing the lives of all of the populations across San Diego. Next slide, if you will. We then, with each of those, started to get into specifics, realizing that to be able to determine as a board whether we had truly advanced job quality required, uh, really being specific about what, how are we going to lean in across a wide variety of different areas, from procurement to the way that we train and equip individuals and businesses, to the work that we do from a policy perspective and to the way that we think about the, the fundraising that we do uh, for our community. And so we laid out a set of goals for each of the five pillars, but specifically on job quality that cut across the way that we serve individuals in the community, as well as the way that we think about our own staff and other uh, workforce practitioners. To really begin to transform not only net new funding streams that we are bringing into San Diego, but even the way that we think about how we use our Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act funding, the way that our job centers work, the way that we procure. Um, next slide. And, and so we ultimately came to a definition uh, for San Diego based on some of my fellow panelists have shared on sourcing information from both our own staff uh, our community members that are coming through our job centers and through our youth centers uh, on what did job quality really mean to them um, and what was the relationship between uh, a number of the components that made up job quality. And so we landed on this definition that includes uh, four different aspects. The first around reliable, predictable earnings with that pathway to self-sufficiency. Um, then around the working conditions that are safe, free from discrimination. And then leading to that opportunity to learn, grow, and advance that is so core to the work that we do as a workforce agency. And then finally, leaning in on the fact that there are systems and benefits that need to be responsive to a worker's individual circumstances and their career goals, but where they're, they're flexible. The things that a person needs today might be different than what they need tomorrow. Um, and the needs of, of, for myself might be different than for my neighbor. Next slide. And so for us, we think about the sort of the ecosystem of, of job quality is really falling into three groups. The first are those job necessities, uh, and I'll share a minute in a minute the indicators that are part of that, that are the floor. Things like the living wage, things like stable schedules, things like being in a safe working environment. And, and these are areas where we feel like it's important that all of the jobs that we are placing individuals into demonstrate those necessities as well as all of the jobs that workforce professionals themselves are, are working and needing to meet those necessities. And then job opportunities around providing that trajectory uh, for individuals to grow and develop within their organization and within the field. And where equity and inclusion are key factors that we need to partner with employers on often for, for them to be able to look at how can they ensure 
that those opportunities are be, there's equal access across the organization. And then the third around features is really empowering people from a choice perspective, realizing that the needs of individuals vary and being able to equip uh, employers with the knowledge of how they can use these as attraction and retention mechanisms, uh, cases where they might be losing out in the market because other employers are offering uh, features that are important to the community, but they're not. Um, and how they can begin to embed that as part of the way that they think about attracting and retaining talent. Next slide. So for us, each of the, the three buckets has a set of indicators. And the way that we're using these are in a couple of uh, spaces. Number one, we're, we're thinking about procurement, right? We, we realize as a workforce agency, we have sort of a dual responsibility. We are both bringing funding into the community and awarding funds in terms of a variety of different subrecipient and service agreement contracts. We're also delivering services uh, directly and we're convening um, and sort of working in a thought leadership space. And so for us, it starts with how we measure things and how we spend our money. And so as we think about the job necessities, opportunities, and features, this has looked for us like a couple of different things. Number one, as we gear up to our procurement uh, cycle, which starts uh, in July is the beginning of our fiscal year, we are embedding job quality requirements into our subrecipient contracts into to service agreements because this allows us to both uh, uh, encourage the behavior of the, the subrecipient or the organization that we're going to be procuring the services from in terms of how they're treating their own uh, staff, but also allows us to award credit uh, for in organizations that are able to demonstrate the quality that exists in their organization, as well as the job quality elements that they're going to bring in terms of the services that are rendered to the community. And so it allows us to be really mindful in the way that we think about how we procure so that we're ensuring we're not just looking at price and we're making a selection. Um, around the way that workforce dollars are going to be uh, spent, but that we're also considering the job elements for the individuals who are providing that service, as well as for the individuals who are going to be served. The, the other consideration for us was about looking inward, really taking these, these indicators and saying, how do we ensure that each of our own practitioners are in jobs where these necessities and opportunities are present? And how do we educate our own staff around the features that are currently present within the organization, as well as places where we might be looking to bring on um, additional options for folks? So it required thinking about, are we really family-friendly? And how do we identify those family-friendly features that exist and help people understand how they can make the best use of their benefits? Are we communicating the, the value that, that exists with the benefits and helping people know how to make best use of them. Um, it's meant for us making changes around our performance management and making investments in learning and development, thinking about um, changing policies, for example, to make more learning and development dollars available to folks that are earlier in that career trajectory so that we can ensure that they have the support that they need. Uh, to advance. So really thinking about our own practitioners. And it became very present for us as we work with other workforce practitioners in our community to say, how can we help other organizations think about ensuring that their own staff are in quality jobs? Because they're going to be counseling and supporting and consulting with the businesses and individuals in the community. And if they're not able to feel like they are in a quality job, then it's very difficult for them to focus on quality jobs for the other individuals. The other thing that we said is we need to really be able to measure, much as some of my panelists, uh, colleagues have talked about benchmarking, where, what kind of jobs exist in our community, as well as what are the participants that we see coming through our doors really looking for. And this allows us to do two things. So we have, we're embedding into our Salesforce system that we use to manage um, the, the variety of programs that we run as a workforce board, both the capturing of data related to the jobs that exist, as well as related to the participants' interests. And this allows us to then begin to match how many times when we've placed individuals, are we placing them in jobs that meet their job quality indicators? And so it's, it begins to provide us data around a couple of things, and we're in early stages on this, but one, we see it as helping to ensure that the participants are educated uh, on the ways 
at, that they're looking at the jobs and what they need for their, their situation. It allows us to also feed back that trend data to employers and ensure that they understand where they might want to make changes around the way that they're approaching attraction or retention or where they're not currently paying um, minimum wage. Next slide. Finally, this all comes together as, as a package, right, that we understand is influenced by the career goals and the circumstances as an individual to make sure that they're ultimately in a quality job. Last slide. And so I've, I've hit on a lot of these already. The last thing I will say is that realizing that there's outreach that has to happen on both sides, right, that I loved what was just shared about not per putting the burden on the individual, but also realizing the availability of the jobs in the community. And so beginning to collect that data and really analyze the data allows us to lean in and working with the employers, businesses in our communities, as well as with the job seekers, so that both of them are empowered around the decisions that they need to make, as well as the areas that they can lean in and make change. Thank you. Well, terrific. Thank you so much, Brooke. Um, that was really uh, great. And we've got a lot to think about. And we've got a lot of questions, actually, to, to get through. So I'm going to I'm going to start with a few. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, well, um, I think I'll start with one of these questions about um, uh, working with employers. We had several questions about working with employers, and some of them were looking um, uh, to ask questions like, um, to what degree do you work with employers who are committed um, to, to particular population groups? So uh, particularly, um, how do you uh, work with employers um, around hiring the previously incarcerated? And also, whether people see biases towards um, low-income employees in their, in their work with employers. Uh, so does, has anybody, um, can, do any of you want to address that issue? Um, this is Janice Urbanic. Um, I can speak a little bit to the last part of that question around biases um, against uh, low entry-level frontline workers. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I've heard multiple employers when I've talked to them about making changes to their frontline worker job design, I've heard them say things like, well, I can't pay more because that job isn't worth more. And um, as as I have probed that around understanding their competitive environment and, and why they think they can't pay more, frankly, that's a bit of a smokescreen or code for, I don't think the people who are in those jobs are worth more because of either their skill set or the barriers that they bring, the complications of their lives. They don't want to invest in them. So yes, absolutely, I have seen that. Great, thank you. Um, Mandy, from or? the J yeah, from the JBS side, this is Mandy. Um, we haven't we haven't really seen that in our work with employers. I think the employers that are really trying to engage with us, those 500 employers that we work with every year, are really trying to get job seekers, and so uh, perhaps they veil their language when they're talking with us. But really, we uh, chat with them about how they're not going to have a competitive advantage if they don't make certain changes and they don't look at certain populations. And so as we are at a historic unemployment or unemployment rate and the labor market so tight, employers are really saying, like, what can we do? So we've seen a real shift in wanting to make changes for frontline workers and understanding what is happening in the landscape really helps with that. It helps make that argument. I think the other piece is the that just building a habit of doing something differently. Uh, sometimes you have to take a leap to try something differently. So I think that our job really is to help these employers have a different vision of what their companies or their roles could be, and then helping them understand a clear pathway to get there by looking at best practices of other employers. If I could add a little bit to this, this is Brooke. The other thing we've seen is some employers, particularly smaller and mid-sized, who felt like, I'd like to try this, but I don't feel like I'm I'm able to. I don't necessarily have the the know-how within my organization, or I might feel like there's some financial barriers. And so we've done some um, job quality experiments with them, where we had them identify where do they want to lean in, and we've kind of co-funded a small investment with them to help them see that actually they 
with a little bit of support could implement it and then be able to see the results that it was having for their business. And then that helps to articulate it to other small and mid-sized businesses that might have felt like they weren't able to lean into the space in the way that they might have wanted to. Brooke, can you give just a quick example of that? What does a job quality experiment look like? Yeah, for example, we had some home care in the healthcare space, right, providers who were really wanted to both increase the wages of the individuals who are working for them, coupled with uh, training that would enable them to essentially move up, right? Uh, and some of the smaller businesses felt like, well, this isn't really something we can do. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get the return, and I'm not sure I know everything I need to know about structuring the program. So we partnered with them to assist them in structuring that development program, which then enabled them to see, hey, with a little bit of help, I could actually test that out. It enabled them to see, hey, as I, I promote people, they're able to take on different kinds of work and be able to sort of restructure the way that the tasks are being performed and actually the business is becoming more profitable. So in fact, I can give them that additional wage increase. And then having gone through the process of testing it out, even after the small investment was done, um, it's something that they embedded as part of the way they were doing business because they could then see the financial value from making the change. Yeah, great. So, so essentially you were able to give them that little push to make, in the, make a change that ended up being sustainable and kind of good with the business. Exactly. Yeah, great. I want to just um, stick with this uh, conversation about employers a little bit longer before turning to some of the other questions. Um, and one of the questions had to do with sort of the, again, kind of with the shifting of the business executive mindsets and particularly when you're sort of, um, uh, Mandy, you know, as you talked about sort of uh, informing them that their jobs might not be as high quality as they thought, right? And sort of how do you sort of engage them in that conversation in a way that they don't step back and, and what has been uh, successful in sort of, um, you know, helping them make the mindset shift and motivating them to, to start creating changes? Um, uh, I, I'll answer that in a, in a certain way. This is kind of, I think, for the the first question about how how we get employers to do that. It's sort of an, we like to use the analogy Amazon versus Amazon Prime. So with Amazon, you can get what you get. You can go on, you get high quality products, et cetera, whether you, however you're feeling about Amazon is, and you know what you're really going to get, but you're not sure when it's going to get to you, et cetera. If you pay for Amazon Prime, which is a small fee to pay, for the whole year you get free shipping and you know exactly what you're going to get, when you're going to get it, and what it's going to be, and how you're going to send it back, et cetera. When we're talking to employers, we sort of use that analogy as you can hire out of our traditional training programs and you can hire in your traditional ways, but you're going to get sort of whoever walks in your door or you're going to get whoever graduates from our training programs, whether they fit with your mission or they align with the vision of your company. That may or may not be true. We do graduate high-quality trainees, but if you pick the Amazon Prime version, which is the fee-for-service route, we target and recruit people who have mission alignment to those companies, and we say to the employer, hey, you're going to get a high-quality person who's dedicated to your company because we've been doing marketing for that, and this person may have left another job to work for your company, and that is going to give you a motivated and engaged employee right off the bat. And so that's one way we sort of talk about our services and have employers invest in that. The other piece is then we're able to contextualize it a lot uh, differently than we would our traditional programs in that we're adding components that are very attractive to employers and they're willing to pay for that. Um, Janice and I have talked a lot about this. You ask an employer how much it costs them to recruit or train someone and you get answers that are crazy. They have no idea or they throw a number out there that's astronomical. So we've been trying to do some longitudinal studies to see what the return on investment actually is. It's really hard to drill down to but honestly, if they don't know what it is before, then you're going to show them at the end by your retention success metrics on how how the doing things in the new way really benefited the company. And if they do know, you can say, hey, route your money this way. It's a different way of doing business, but you're going to spend less in the beginning and get a lot more for the end. So really, I think by building those habits and by talking about it in a way that that everyone understands and sort of analogies, et cetera, uh, employers have really shifted their habits and we're expanding this talent pipeline model into different industries, banking and childcare, uh, and looking at a couple more for the next couple of years. 
Okay, great. So you mentioned childcare, so that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, do any of these programs include policy advocacy? Because for some fields, such as childcare, it's not as simple as just paying employees more because of various policies, um, benefit clips and reimbursement rates and so on. So uh, how do you address policy issues? I can start, Wayne, if you'd like. This is Brooke. So for us, policy is really embedded as one of the goals in almost all of our pillars because we realize that there are changes sometimes locally, state, federal level that are important. So childcare is one where we've been quite active. We released um, about a month ago a workforce and childcare uh, piece and held a convening with local elected officials, employers, et cetera, to raise awareness around not only the challenges that were being faced by parents, but also provide a, a set of specific changes that we could make here in San Diego that really weave together uh, the, the policy sort of components with changes on the ground that are necessary to be able to support um, working families. And I think a lot of that came from much as some of the panelists shared about really allowing folks to see the numbers not as a deficit on behalf of the individual, but as gaps that exist in our system uh, between the, the funding that are available, the, the wages of the, the various jobs and what they're paying and the needs that the family has. And so leaning in on how do we do things like make sure we're drawing down every dollar of the, the state funding, like really beginning to pull on those levers as well as levers related to the actual programmatic is a key piece for us. Um, Maureen, uh, this is Janice. Can I add on yeah. to that for a minute? Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, one of the key parts in, in this whole discussion around like the benefits cliff, et cetera, is getting data and presenting it in a way that's compelling, that, that takes a very complex subject and reduces it down to something really simple. And um, on this question of childcare, there was some research done in Massachusetts and in um, some of the other New England states, and they have one graph that illustrates the cliff effect and then they changed one variable, and that was universal child care. And when you overlay universal child care, the cliff effect goes away. It's a stark graphical uh, presentation that really helps employers and policymakers understand the impact of one policy intervention. The other thing is um, in Cincinnati, our local women's fund did some graphic analysis of um, the cliff effect and I overlaid those cliff effect graphs with a typical career path and wages for the in-demand industries, three in-demand industries. And when you overlay the cliff effect data with wages in those industries, you can see what the issue is. It's very stark, very clear. Employers get it. Great. Uh, thank you both. Um, uh, Brooke, I'm going to uh, send this next question your way, at least to start. Um, when you mentioned that you look for uh, job quality indicators in procurement, are you referring to job quality within nonprofits that you fund or job quality indicators that nonprofits must enforce with employer placements? Or can you just talk a little bit about that? Um, but I'm going to add to this uh, question about procurement to also say, you also mentioned um, how the focus on job quality just influence sort of internal practices generally. And it'd be great if, if to the degree that uh, all of you've had experience with that, if maybe all of you could comment on that. Um, but Brooke, let's uh, go ahead and start. Yeah, from a procurement perspective, we're looking at both things, right? Number one, we're looking at the folks that we're already serving and it resulted, or sorry, the, the, the various organizations we're already funding. And it resulted in looking at everything from wages to caseloads, et cetera, within those existing procurements and saying, where can we make changes um, to make sure we have you know, case management ratios that make sense, that the, the wages that our own uh, funded partners are earning make sense, right? We're beginning to really dig in on the, that data and then think about for future procurements that we want to ensure that the wages that are being proposed as part of that procurement, right, makes sense for the own staff that are in that organization. Uh, the other side of the coin is the services that those organizations are going to deliver. So uh, we're working on language now that would allow us to look at how we could award 
points for proposals that are outlining not only the job quality elements in place for their own staff, but in the way that they were going to be delivering the service to participants. Um, and we're working um, as we look at our future procurements for our youth system and eventually for our adult system, embedding job quality requirements into the way that we carry out the work of placing individuals. One of our goals for our system is to get to a place where 80% of those placements are in quality jobs. Um, and so that requires changing. It doesn't mean we're not meeting the, the required state and federal requirements around simply being placed in a job, but it requires going beyond that and the way that we establish requirements for the system around placements. Great. Um, do others want to comment on sort of how the work on job quality maybe has influenced, you know, sort of internal job quality practices? I can comment on that. This is Mandy. Um, we have talked a lot about how our jobs compare to other nonprofits in the Boston area, and so we are about to embark on a job quality exploration uh, of nonprofits in the area so that we can actually address with our own teams here how the jobs at JVS compare to other organizations that we are also competing for because, quite frankly, we're an employer and we are having a hard time attracting and retaining talent. And so we are looking at that because we believe it's important to share with our colleagues what our jobs really are on our own tool and to sort of walk the walk of what we're doing. When we started this project uh, a while back, a lot of our colleagues thought it was about improving job quality internally. And now uh, sort of so we're being more strategic about that, looking at our own jobs and looking at employer partners so that we can really uh, be true to what we what we believe in terms of providing quality jobs, all employers providing quality jobs. Great. Thanks. Um, okay, let's see. I, I have uh, I have more questions than I know what to do with here. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I, I guess I'll ask one more question about um, well, there's uh, so there's one question about the need for supervisory training for employer partners and to talk more about this. Um, I don't know if any of you want to comment quickly, although I will note that we're going to be in our next webinar talking about this uh, particular issue a lot more. Um, but I'm just curious if there, if any of you, uh, um, Janice, I think you brought up the issue of supervisory training. You know, if there's any um, tricks to sort of making this habit happen and building receptivity to the idea that uh, supervisory training might be uh, part of the solution. So uh, yeah, where the sites who have decided to work on supervisory training have been uh, basically from the results of surveys or some assessments of the workers that then when they started to analyze it, um, it started to point out that there might be one or two supervisors that are a key issue. And when that data was brought to the management of that company, um, a lot of times it did reinforce what some of the managers already knew that the manager, you know, XYZ um, tended to be an issue, uh, but it was reinforced by the data from the direct employees. So it just illustrates the value again of getting the voice of the worker involved. In, in terms of finding a curriculum for it, um, that, one's, that one's a little tricky in that every employer is a little bit different. Um, there have been some requests around, um, are there some standard parts of supervisory training that, that should be included and then it can be tailored to each? Um, yes, there, there are, especially on things like um, racial equity and inclusion or gender um, inclusion. Um, those are things that should be included no matter what supervisory training there are. Um, but a lot of times employers like to figure out their own. And, and even though they say they want a product that's off the shelf, um, they always want to um, have the liberty to make changes to it. So the, the key message here is um, as you're working with an employer, if you think supervisory training is an issue, if it's coming up in the data, engage in discussion again with the employees and with the managers to understand what they're looking for, what, what end objectives do they have, and then tailor the, the curriculum accordingly. Great. Um, I think that's all we're going to have time for today. Um, uh, Mandy or um, uh, Brooke, do you want to offer, offer one more final comment? 
Okay. Um, well, we are at time, uh, so thank you all uh, for joining us today. Um, uh, this was a great conversation. As I mentioned, we had more questions than we could get to. We will share these with our uh, with our speakers, the questions that you sent in that we didn't have time to get to, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, post some answers to those or at least share them uh, with the question posers directly. Um, our next webinar will be on March 24th on how to strengthen frontline management to improve job quality. So keep your eye out for that, uh, details on that soon. And again, thank you for joining our job quality and practice webinar.